Hello, welcome to Loud in the Words, the podcast that's about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. In this episode, we're talking about water, salty and fresh, and what lives in it and on it. Fish, animals, oysters. And new evidence on threats and also uh, new good news about conservation. So it's a great pleasure to welcome our two guests, Anna Sturrock and Tom Cameron from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Essex. Aquatic ecologist and animal ecologist, I think would be fair to say. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. You've both worked in a wide range of marine and coastal environments, environments affected by climate change, by human action and indeed inaction. Um, So could you just tell us a bit about what your research is saying about marine and freshwater conservation? What's kind of new and exciting? Hi, yeah, so my name's Anna Sturrock. I am a fish ecologist primarily, and my research is really focusing on kind of fish movement and fish health, and really finding new tools that we can kind of understand these really important processes, and then how we can use that information to better manage them and produce more sustainable fisheries. Mm, Excellent. Tom, what's your... Well, as you say, animal ecologist, but really um, my, my research is looking at people who live with animals and live with nature and the the problems they might have and then applying tools to try and see how we can fix those problems so that people in nature can you know live better together right so it is this intersection for both of you over what maybe management or action or inaction and the consequences for natural systems absolutely yeah Yeah. so um anna fish ecology fish behavior salmonids that you've studied a lot of so pick an example and tell us a bit about the kind of uh, the 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 details of the work that you do but also the implications of that sure okay so um my twitter name is otolith girl and i'm pretty obsessed with these structures they are um the ear stone of the fish and so they're in all bony fishes and they're amazingly beautiful crystalline structures in the brain of the fish and the fish uses them to keep upright and uh, to hear Um, but they record um, the growth rate of that fish in these beautiful layers just like tree trunk rings and so this is primarily the tool that I use to reconstruct their movements because as they grow they basically use the water chemistry around them to incorporate ions into it and so then I can use the chemistry as a kind of chemical tracker to reconstruct where they've been and so it works really well with things like salmon because they go between freshwater and saltwater and so that chemical shift is really really big and also within uh, freshwater in, in California especially where I've been working for the last eight and a half years um, there's a lot of um, geologic heterogeneity so you know you've got the volcanoes you've got landslides tectonic plates so what we found there was that pretty much every watershed had a kind of unique signature so we could track these movements with sometimes very 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 high resolution and it was just like attaching a kind of gps tracker to the fish it was quite satisfying to work with once you've got that information then you can start kind of looking back in time through that fish's life and looking at the survivors that come back and you can say okay so when we released water from that reservoir for example it had a really good response in terms of the growth rate of the fish and the survival rates or vice versa it had a negative response so we can link this to management so we're we're discovering the gps trackers which of course the fish have somehow 
anyway. Exactly, we all do. Amazing uh, uh, migration patterns and and so forth. Uh, fascinating. Tom, tell us a bit then about about the kind of pick an area to focus on. Would it be oysters? Uh, it could be a list. Well, come. I'll come to oysters and as a, as a good example. But you think of ecology as a science of about 110 years old. It's a really young science, and yet for the vast majority of that, it's actually been the science of biodiversity decline. And so people have studied that for a very long time, and we've got to this point where people started to get worried about climate change and biodiversity loss. And all of a sudden, ecology has been moving to the science of biodiversity recovery. And that's a site aligned with things like this is the decade of, you know, the UN decade of restoration. That's all very well and good because people will say, well, that's brilliant. We found this thing that's declined, oysters or ducks or fish. Let's recover them. But they don't know how. And so my science is kind of stepping in and saying, right, okay, let me see if I can find something about what this species or this population needs. Um, maybe still incorporating something that we need from that species, the fishing opportunity or the, the food opportunity or the um, just the kind of n- the nice feeling it gives us inside when we see these animals and plants. And I'll go out and do some very basic and classical ecology, but just answers a very unique question that says, this is what we need to achieve if you want this species to recover. So you could apply that to oysters, absolutely. We're doing that now on the coasts and a lot of other features in the coast. So a lot of my work is on coasts in estuaries with, um, you know, habitats and species associated with them, like salt marshes, seagrasses, oysters, that we say we want to recover, but we don't always know how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so take us then into the kind of lives of salmonids that are that are making these kind of movements from these different kinds of environments. So, so you've got physical changes in, in the otoliths, and you've also got chemical ones as well, these kind of signatures. Um, what are we learning that's, in a sense, kind of new about these these animals? Well, um, in the UK, salmon are not doing particularly well. Wild salmon are really on the decline, and we're really worried about them. And so um, one of the th- big question marks is they seem to be doing particularly badly at sea. And so one of the questions is, well, where are they going at sea? So there's a lot of amazing tagging work going on, and that's telling us a lot. But then what, we, what we're doing, I'm working with uh, someone at Marine Scotland called Nora Hansen, and we're looking at um, oxygen isotopes in the otoliths. So this is basically a temperature recorder. and so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The isotopes, they're two different, uh, the same atom, different number of neutrons, which means that they're different weights. And so basically when it's warmer, the lighter one will kind of go up, be excreted more quickly. And so you get the kind of lovely temperature recorder. And so um, Nora's doing some really nice work looking at the kind of mapping of thermal residencies in the, in the, in the, in the ocean. And so we're now able to start looking at kind of where are they hanging out in the sea and, and what can we kind of do about it. I take a more kind of we can't do much about what they're doing in the sea. And so for me, I think that's, you know, I can imagine that's quite frustrating for managers because, you know, you, your hands are a bit tied. So I quite like looking at the kind of more the early lifetime and uh, where, when they're in the rivers because we have more management tools at our disposal. So another tool that I'm using is actually the eye lens. And so it's pretty gross. We actually, no one wants to kill a salmon anymore, which is fair enough because they're not doing well. So um, people, lovely river biologists are going out and like clawing their eyeballs out of the dead ones on the riverside for me it's very smelly work and I very much appreciate it but um, the eye lens is protein and so it tells us what they've been eating and so but it also records in layers and so now we can look back to when they're babies and say well this habitat type and this food type was really important to them and so we need to protect those particular kind of areas for example so we're, we're kind of understanding that it's the whole of the life yes. time of an individual animal and indeed a whole 
population, of exactly. course, and then of course the the um, the the spatial aspects as well, exactly. the kind of where as well as the 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 time scale. So kind of complex in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and are we? I mean, the 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 thing hovering in the background here is climate change and climate crisis, warming water. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of what sorts of things are we seeing? I mean, we widely accepted that. The oceans are warming and they'll take up more space, so they're going to come upwards. Um, but the subtle effects on individual animals and species um, are often missed in, ter- in terms of that kind of conversation. Sea level rise will, will happen. Well, okay, but what about... What about the types of fish in the North Sea or the North Atlantic would be relevant for Absolutely. us? Absolutely. I mean, we're not doing, again, you know, we're not doing some stuff that, uh, directly, but we do a lot of work on salt marshes that are disappearing because of sea level rise. Not because they wouldn't, if we had, they had space to move, but we build seawalls to protect ourselves and it leaves them pretty vulnerable. The water comes up, they disappear. For that, for that reason, we're sampling all sorts of animals that live in these habitats and we're starting to find species that really should be in the Mediterranean, you know? And then we measure the water temperature of an Essex or Kent or Suffolk salt marsh and go, oh, well, it is Mediterranean. And that, you know, people don't, you know, you enjoy a swim in the estuary around the, the Southern North Sea. Yeah. It's warmer would be better well, it's if tw- you're swimming. <laughs> it's 24 to 26 degrees in August. I mean, that is um, uncanny. And it's not surprising when, if, you know, the tide goes out and the sun comes out um, and the mud gets up to 50, 60 degrees from the solar temperature. It certainly will this week. And, of course, there's many organisms that can survive there. That's good. There's many organisms that it's perfectly natural that they would expand north and change their main core range into that new area. And we're seeing that with uh, fish. We're seeing um, gilthead sea bream. We're seeing species that are non-native that were introduced maybe to southern Britain and to France via oyster aquaculture, via ship movements. And their range is now moving up into Essex and Suffolk and Norfolk because the waters are warming. So there's certainly plenty of evidence that the, from the animal perspective and the plant perspective, that the communities that we're used to growing up with here in the Southern North Sea, they, they have already changed. And if I can just add to that a little bit with the, um, so I'm, I'm part of a, a sea unicorn, it's a cost action, it's a European network that we're all talking about the importance of connectivity and our totem animal is the narwhal. And so that lives up in the, you know, the Arctic, it's got a very specific habitat type and it's been really, you know, it's been really badly affected by all of these species now moving towards the poles. So it's now and feeds competi- on. And what does what does narwhal feed oh on? Oh God, you're putting me on the spot here. I should know this. Probably small fish and and and, and shrimps, I suspect. Yeah. But they're now in competition with a lot more animals. And so things and also the predators of them, like orcas. Now that there's less ice cover, they can now move into these habitats that narwhals used to be very well adapted to and able to kind of hide underneath the ice. So, you know, those are the extremes when you see that polar shift. The There's nowhere to go, there. exactly. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing is that this kind of, we think of things very much horizontally, but actually connectivity, think about it vertically. And so often you'll see species going deeper um, when they can, because it's often cooler, deeper. But also we see things like salmonids moving upstream, up into high elevation habitats. So in California, we found that where you've got these big dams and they're not able to do that anymore, it's leaving them very, very vulnerable. And so allowing those thermal refugia to continue and keeping them connected is really important. Mm. Um, and when we're thinking about, Tom, you're saying about um, it's all very well us having a decade of restoration of biodiversity. Who's going to argue with that? Um, well, 
hopefully we've got that on the on the books but then the delivery of that kind of recovery and restoration we we're faced with with continuing and for some time hopefully not forever um the climate shifts um uh, but other forms of kind of uh, human action or or inaction uh and and you're saying the very specific actions are required for some form of recovery uh, absolutely a particularly success so restoration can be divided into three different themes but two of them are very interesting and you can summarize them as um doing the engineering and therefore your job's finished because you've completed end. you've yep. completed the physical intervention and actually asking well what is it we were trying to achieve at what value was it before and then measure it afterwards and see what and that's success but the vast majority of restoration projects is an engineering project we've built the wall we've brought, or we've brought the wall down therefore we've done it unfortunately as you can guess when you go and measure it afterwards it turns out it wasn't very successful that's really important for some things like that anna said about like dams and fish passes well, quite a lot of them just don't work at all but there is a fish path there and that you know that's the same with a lot of ecological restoration we talk about we could talk about oysters salt marsh whatever it is um the problem is is often we don't actually do the right intervention for the species that's concerned or even go and, and take the care to find out whether any interventions required at all so you've got money you want to spend it you spend it on restoration it turns out it wasn't needed and that's you know maybe not a bad thing but for me i worry that we make promises for nature which nature can't deliver that's my biggest fear because there's so many times then that, that just turns people against nature and they go we've spent all that money what a waste of time that was we're never doing it again. So restoration science needs to be a science. And that's not that it's engineers versus scientists. We just need to get much What's better. What's the right thing to do? Yeah, yeah, communicating with each other, working together and working with the communities that physically live there where you've got that danger that they could one day go, no, I've had enough of nature. I'd rather have my job back or I'd rather have this. Something that they've given up, the sacrifice they've made to you know, work with you to get nature to recover. So that's why... I think it's important that we ask the right questions and, and do the right follow-ups to make sure we learn so that when you come round to me and say, Tom, I've got something else I want to restore, I say, ah, well, we've, we've done that work. We've, we've learned that that worked there, but it wouldn't work there, and therefore I can give you good you know, advice. And actually, on that note, like building adaptive management into the process, you know, knowing that things don't always work or work very well, then you're like, let's try this slight iteration of what we just tried last season. And then, you know, so I think, I mean, people are talking about adaptive management explain, a lot explain more. Explain about adaptive management. Oh, Tell gosh. us. Well, if you're, you know, if you're designing a car, you might find that you've got a little kind of piece that sticks out and gives, you know, reduces the streamlinedness of it and it goes slower than you want it to go. So the next iteration of that car, you remove that screw or change it to a kind of smoother one. It's exactly the same with um, kind of habitat restoration. You know, if you haven't been measuring the before and after, you wouldn't know what is and isn't working. So that what Tom was talking about is bang on the mark. So I think one of the dangers is that funding schedules are often quite short and you need them to be long if you're actually going to make that kind of adaptive um, kind of management. And policy too. Policy is very fixed and, and, and particularly um, in Europe, but also particularly more so again in the UK, we like very fixed policies and we like quite high level approval for policies. But adaptive management in the systems that it works and the countries that it works in actually give freedom. They make a, a core set of policies and then hand that off to civil servant or scientist level and say, OK, 
the policy is the objective. But how we get there will be adaptive. So if you take a fisheries as an example, you know, we could say the scientists say this is what should happen this year. And therefore, that is actually what happens. And if it's wrong, we learn from it and adapt and give a bit more quota or a bit less quota next year. Whereas what we tend to do here is go, no, this is what it will be this year. We'll redo the process entirely next year and it goes back to ministers. Or maybe in five years' time. Or in five years' time, exactly. But the, the point of having, you know, that kind of authoritative control does limit adaptive management. And yet it is beginning, it's beginning in an exciting way, beginning to creep in. So we're seeing adaptive management on um, marine protected areas because the legislation's coming in at kind of regional and council levels. And in many ways, they're being more exciting and dynamic in kind of allowing adaptive management to flourish. We've seen it in some goose management systems, again, at uh, kind of... Um, regulatory body and rather than ministerial and I mean I understand why ministers with big controversial decisions want sign off but I think if we really want exciting wildlife management we need adaptive management and therefore they need to kind of let go a little yeah. bit. So essentially you're describing allowing some some trust and confidence in the kind of social systems that, that interact, back to your earliest a- point, a- with the, the natural systems, with the wildlife because if we if we think that a salmon is important or an oyster is important, we've already made a kind of value judgment as to which bit of the as it were, biodiversity we think is important. I mean we need to tell stories so very often having, having the iconic thing is kind of part of connecting uh, more broadly um, but there is something about the, the the confidence in the social management of the system the people involved yeah. whoever they are and allowing them to evaluate and work out what happens next and, and also i think on that note i think managing expectations is so important you know now we're seeing this whiplash weather we're calling it you know with climate change and everything is changing so rapidly and you know if you do something on a short-term basis, the next year this might be a, a crazy storm year and it, it undoes all, undoes all that good work you've done. And so I think, you know, having things on the right sort of timelines and understanding that you can't just take a single year as a result. You have to look at averages through time and, um, yeah, managing expectations mm. because... I think timing is getting more and more more crazy. And actually, you talked about it early with the effects of climate change. And we talked about it from a movement perspective. But phenology is also changing so rapidly. So for things like migratory species, like like salmon, the changes in the timing that they're leaving can make them completely mismatched with the next environment. And so that's another big thing we need to be thinking about is timing, both from management and ecological yeah. perspective. So if something arrives and there's no food... Exactly. Um, well, classically, if birds migrate from Africa and arrive and they arrive before or after the insects they need to eat, then exactly. then they have a yeah. kind of real problem. Yeah. 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 It affects people too. So, um, you know, one of the main problems here locally isn't a lack of, of oysters. Uh, and, and to you know, we've got lots of farmed oysters, rock oysters, and then we've got, it turns out, we've actually got lots of native European oysters. And Essex is this massive stronghold, and you think we not need to intervene at all. But they have um, evidence that they're really struggling to recruit. So they're, they're, they can produce young, but those young just don't survive. And the main reason for that is that they need something to settle on. They need something in the sediment, another oyster, more shell. And even I say, say there's lots. And when I say lots, I do mean millions, but millions in the ocean is nothing. It's still nothing, and it's still you know less than 10% of what there used to be. So they've lost a lot of shell and structured habitat that those babies used to settle on. And they do it in one to two weeks 
in a year. So, so if you get that bit wrong. If you get that bit wrong, then you lose your, your whole reproduction. And so if you then think about how people used to interact with these oysters, they'd bring some of those offshore populations inland just so that it was closer really and they'd simulate that activity they've got my oysters in this patch here they're also going to breed in this little period per year but they'd prepare the bed they'd add extra shell and stones or try and dust off i say dust it sounds nice they'd rake off all the mud to expose the hard stuff but they had to do it at the right time and what they used to do was the flowers and the trees particularly chestnut trees and if the chestnut trees were flowering they'd go ha the oysters will be spawning. But now the chestnut trees are flowering in March and the oysters are still spawning in June. So we've got climate change happening much faster rates on land and than it is in the sea. And it's affecting not just the wildlife, but the interaction that we have with wildlife. And, you know, in, in, in lots of other areas of the world, that's the same too. If you look up in, in the north, um, culturally, uh, Swedes and Norwegians and Russian and Canadian communities love ice fishing and it's beginning to, to become a thing of the past. It's not in most places anymore a kind of necessity, but culturally it's really important to them to take their family out on the ice and some of them just will not take their kids on the ice in those southern parts of those countries anymore because the ice isn't just safe enough. So it's climate change is having a real effect in that human wildlife interaction as much as it is on on on, on the kind of either either system separately uh if we so i mean kind of what you've described is a is a kind of indigenous knowledge system it's local to a particular place it was knowledge about oysters in in this environment in 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 the estuaries of the east of england in a similar way um local indigenous knowledge systems around salmonids in california would have helped to look after, manage them and embed them equally into the kind of culture, as we know from from many Native American groups along the whole of the coast of the northwest of the Americas. Yeah, I mean, I would say like industrial fishing has has shifted everything and removed a lot of that local knowledge. And um, actually, we're working with some with some salmon otoliths. Uh, for, they're not super old, about 150 years old, um, with a paleontologist called Malta Vilmers. Um, and the results are striking. It's, you know, pre versus post dam construction. And their behaviours are completely different. The A structure is completely different. They're a completely different beast. And it wasn't that long ago. We've completely changed the the whole environment and how we interact with them as well. So this is fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, you, you, one might think a salmon is a salmon, an oyster is an oyster. But if you're going back 100, 150 years, you're not only saying they are physically different, but they're behaving in a completely different way because of the, the interventions, uh, the, the changes in the environment, which have largely arisen from uh, the kinds of interventions that we've made um, that, that one could describe as, as kind of negative. Well, let's come to kind of management then, kind of uh, uh, protection, marine protection. Um, last year, I um, travelled out to St Kilda, mm -hmm. um, so 160k into the North Atlantic. Um, incredible. I mean, just incredible in terms of. Uh, I mean, it's a, just three rocks, isn't it? It's beautiful, of, though. Beautiful, yeah. fantastic. Never seen so many puff puffins. Mm. Puffin mats were just black on the water. Gannets, razor bills, um, hundreds and hundreds of of uh, 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 birds at any particular spot. Well, thousands. Um, and uh, and you kind of get a sense from that. Ooh, this is interesting. <laughs> this is what it 
could be like, used to be like, you're already beginning to kind of think about, not that it's a perfect environment or a pristine one, um, but it is one that is protected um, now and is far away from from kind of human interventions because of the nature of being in the middle of the Atlantic. But you get a sense of what's possible. So tell us a bit about kind of marine protection then. Well, I mean, marine protection, it sounds, ultimately it's about protected areas. It, and if, you, if people can't, it's difficult to visualise them because you look at the sea and you go, it, that, it's that bit over there, but it looks the same as this bit here because you can only see the sea surface and you can look at it in a map. If you were looking at a forest, I mean, exactly. you would be able to tell exactly. the difference. But yeah. it is effectively the same as a nature reserve on the coast or uh, another, except it doesn't have duck boards and signs and all the rest of it, but it's essentially got some level of protection. And I think we sometimes see it exploited by the NGO market, but just because it's a protected area doesn't mean it's fully protected. It means just like a nature reserve, it has certain levels of protection, but it might still allow visitors to walk their dog at one nature reserve but not another and in the same way in the sea some protected areas don't allow certain fishing activities but they allow others and they don't allow certain um, dredging activities or recreational activities but they allow others but the, the, the ultimate aim is to protect what is known as a feature something about that protected area that someone has gone out and collected the data and said there's something really important and unique about this site. We should make sure that feature is protected. So, for example, if it grows on the bottom of the sea, they might say no more bottom trawling or dredging. You're allowed to catch fish in the water column, but you must not come in contact with the seabed. And that's the vast majority of our marine protected areas is that they're protected for a feature on the seabed. And then there's others that are protected because they provide really good feeding opportunities for gannets and razorbills and puffins because we happen to know that, say, for example, sand deals aggregate there for some reason. And that would say no pelagic fishing, no fishing in the water column in that area is allowed because it's been preserved for a feeding area for birds. So we ha they're essentially a mapping exercise underpinned by good evidence that says um, it's probably wise to prevent a certain activity in this area to allow the feature to flourish because it, it does something for the planet or nature or, or us. And, and one thing I just wanted to add to that was, I think, you know, what you said is absolutely correct. My concern with it is, you know, as you said, when we've got the data for it, and there's often this like arms race, you know, we need to have the data to get it protected. But actually, you know, this 30 by 30 push by UN and, and Greenpeace and all these other... Um, Ex explain that. So, 30% of the area. 30% yeah, of the entire ocean should be protected by 2030 is the kind of tagline, at least is the kind of important word as well. The reality is it's almost certainly not going to reach that target, I don't think, um, my understanding is. But, um, I mean, we can have, we're talking about it more on land as well, rewilding. And I think there is, there is this real, there's this issue where we might not always have the data, but it doesn't mean to say that we don't need some wild areas because nature will just do what nature does. And um, and also we often talk like these features, you know, we want to protect a feature, but actually sometimes it's a migratory corridor we need to protect. So, you know, when we see whales and they use the same migratory corridor, if that, you know, co crosses over with a really important shipping uh, lane, we need to know about that. And so and we need to kind of try and stop that from happening because the noise from that and, you know, ship collisions, real issue. 
So I guess I'm kind of, you know, earlier in the conversation, I was talking a lot about the science we're doing and the restoration and really trying to get into the weeds. But actually, I, I, I think we can over-science it almost. And I think sometimes it's, it's, it's good just to be kind of like, let's just make marine protected areas and make sure we do a network of it, trying to have, you know, at least some kind of representation of different habitat types, even before sometimes we have the data to say why exactly we need that, because otherwise things can be lost before we've even had a chance to study them so it might be better just in in certain circumstances to act anyway in the name of kind of protection you know adding to the 30 for 30 movement and and then see kind of what happens at that point that would be adaptive management and that would be the that would you know i describe basically how we do marine protected areas now but it has all sorts of problems like promising nature will deliver like has to go to the minister but if it was actually an adaptive system it doesn't matter because people would accept that it might end up like we'll try it and if it doesn't work we'll move it or decrease its size or increase its size and it would be something that wouldn't be controversial but at the moment it's extremely controversial because when it happens it's fixed and it's fixed for perpetuity and it could be that it's really wise to create really large spatial areas but then within there have the ability to turn bits off and on depending on what they are. Now, that is the adaptive management that's emerged. For example, the, the local marine protected area, one of the ways in which it's protected is what's called a marine conservation zone. It's called the Blackwater, Crouch, Roach and Colne, which basically means the Essex um, estuaries, the marine, rivers, yeah. marine conservation yeah. zone. And it is divided up into seven or eight you know, management zones within it. And the adaptive management we're looking at is exactly that. Let's turn that one on to fully protected for 10 years, but leave that one to partially protected. And and then and then if the oysters really recover there or the, the, the taupe or... You know this, the, those uh, medium-sized sharks, or something else that is um, important in the area, we can then change that and change that, and that adaptive process will allow us to get to. The, I think for multiple reasons, people are more likely to be acceptable of something if they understand that it's not forever, and that that they accept that there's uncertainty, and that uncertainty is something that we will reduce over time together. As a team, as, as a learn. team. So there's as there's the opportunity. So there's the someone in the some of these environments would be fisher, fishermen, fisher folk um, who who might be fishers of the oysters or yeah. of, of 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 other fish. So they need to have trust in that kind of capability of of making changes. In other words, if they express something, then someone's going to listen at yep. the very least, yeah. and something may then happen as a result of it. So, you could, so, so for, if we were accepting that adaptive management was possible. You could introduce a three-mile limit to the entire coastline of United Kingdom tomorrow and say it's all protected, with exceptions. And if it, so, that would be reversing it. Yes, rather, exactly. Rather than saying it, it, it's 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 not, but and we'll create a few bits that here's are. Here's where you can go. Here's where you can go instead of here's where you can't go. If you reverse the problem tomorrow, you could introduce. But we don't. We're all. We're not. I can understand why as well. Mm-hmm. There's lots of sectors that are scared of. In perpetuity, so we we need to think about adaptive management as a way to say for all sides, the the the, the Greenpeace side, and the the fishing side, and then us in the middle saying, um, you know, let's not be scared of it because if it really causes so much social problems, we're willing to change, and if it doesn't protect enough ecological damage, we're willing to change, and everybody will give a bit. Mm. And is there a, there's some evidence of 
spillover effects that if you create a kind of conservation um, area in one place then the bits around it or in neighboring areas may benefit as well as as uh, fish and other animals move um, yeah, as the environment itself is changed yeah no way. absolutely that's been there's been a lot of data showing that even you know there's a lot lot of sort of arguments of why marine protected areas don't work for mobile fish species because you know they move around a lot um but actually there's a lot of data showing that um they do they do work and you do get kind of larger fish within them and they produce exponentially more eggs and that does have spillover effects um one of the tricky parts is this monitoring and this is something that I'm quite passionate about is trying to sort of find the tools that we can use so my kind of OTIF methods have they have their limitations but geneticists you know there's so we basically got this group of us trying to come together to look at biophysical modeling so oceanographic modeling and circulation patterns so predicting where the larvae go we've got um, tagging of adult animals you know big bigger species usually we've got the chemical traces like that i use and geneticists and we're trying to bring these tools and integrate them a bit, bit better so we can actually see how uh, an mpa network really works and you know whether it does have the desired response mm. yeah. so i probably 25 years ago i remember standing on the seawall down on the essex coast on the blackwater when the when it wasn't the first um punching through of what was what is called, kind of called managed retreat but it's a sort of you know it is about creating a different kind of environment as you were saying earlier tom um down at abbott's hall um and uh, i think the first one was at tolsbury wasn't it and then abbott's hall and this idea that um uh, that we can take as you were saying deliberate um engineering interventions in other words remove remove a seawall that has been there, river wall that's been probably looked after for a thousand years, yeah, probably more. Um, and then we change the environment on the inside, which becomes, as it were, the outside. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what happens when we let the sea in, because because I'm kind of interested as well is that as we face um, the challenges of, of, of the climate crisis, as the sea will be knocking on the door more and warmer and changing, as you were saying, Anna, changing the environment more, we're probably going to have to do more uh, direct action at the coast to protect other sorts of things. Absolutely. And, and there will be times, of course, where we must hold that line. There could be a power station, there could be a waste disposal site full of pollution, and we must hold that line. But other times we are now seeing a much increasing consideration of the idea that what is the norm is no longer the norm, and that could apply to protect, you know, protecting our coastline, protecting our coastline. And I say that in inverted commas um, because it's a philosophical approach. If we say that we're bringing down that seawall to create salt marsh to protect biodiversity, well, actually, it doesn't happen overnight. And you know, you what effectively you do for a very short period of time is create a mudflat, and it takes maybe a hundred, two hundred years before salt marsh fully unless you go in again and engineer sediment trapping, which is again another intervention and non-natural, it will take a long time. And the prediction is that it, it, it will take a long time, but it always happens faster because nature's always... We, there's pretty got, good. Uh, yes, yes, pretty good. Yeah. But you know, then you've got the other philosophy, which is, well, 
you know, a lot of these habitats behind seawalls, they were the seas. Now, this is my other hat on, my kind of more green Greenpeace, the tree huggy hat on, and go, well, if you look at the old maps, the wonderful old maps of Essex, and go, well, wait a minute, we took that habitat from the sea. That was part of what I call the breathing room, the lung part. If you breathe in, you know, your lungs increase. And that was what the, the sea. And it, there's, there's times where it was three, four, five, seven miles inland on a big spring tide would be affected by salt water. I don't mean it would all come up that far, but it would be affected by salinity. And that would be what you call like high grazing marsh. It would still be used by man. It's, it's all wheat now to within 50 metres of the sea. So let's be honest and say somebody sometime we in the past... We took it back in the first we place. We said we're having that and yep. they drained it. So there is an argument to say, you know, the sea level's coming up. If you don't give it the breathing room, that water's going to go somewhere and it's going to go down the roads, over the, over the bridges, into the houses. So there is an argument to say, just to deal with what we've been thrown, we're not going to stop sea level rise. There's an amount locked in. We're going to have to give it some breathing room. So that wall is going to have to come down. So, there, so the core of this is, is um, as you said, um, scientific understanding of what works and what doesn't work, uh, understanding of the engineering possibilities, but also it's a psychological problem. Yeah, it is. Because you're standing there looking at to see which is going to come in more and we're going to need to th- rethink um, actually what we're doing on the land um, and changing that barrier to be more porous. And it's important to say that farmers in the main are not all against, you know, it's not that they're against this. They're open to these ideas they that could there could see. be change coming. Mm. Yeah, and just um, thinking from the other direction, freshwater coming downstream, um, you know, the floodplains that we used to have that kind of would go across the land and it would be super fertile in California, they, they basically built these really huge flood bypasses um, that will only overtop at high water, but they stop this, you know, capital city from flooding. But now they found if they put fishing cages on those kind of unnatural bypass floodplains, they're like, oh, they grow very fast because they're so fertile, so many bugs. Um, so now they're spending kind of billions of dollars kind of making what they call the big notch in the weir to allow fish passage and allow the salmon to use it and to get those benefits. But, you know, when you're like, oh, you know, we should be thinking about this before we do this infrastructure from a kind of co-benefit perspective because we could save a lot of money. So I'm yeah, really keen to talk to you, actually, Jules, about all of this kind of you know, agricultural kind of um, nature-based solutions and stuff. Well, definitely. I mean, I think kind of one of the one of the most notable, it's a little bit of an iconic example uh, of, of this sort of social intervention but with kind of a, a lot of understanding of the ecosystem was is the the new york water system new york city i mean new york city doesn't have a water treatment works um all of the water is supplied from the catskill delaware watersheds and they had the choice some years ago to to spend billions on a on a big new um, plant to treat the water to allow the pollution to happen to come down and treat the water technically easy engineering simple we know how to do it cost a huge amount and they elected to go for a process that got all the farmers on side put money into the watershed um, change the dairy farming system so cryptosporidium wasn't so much of a problem change the nitrate um, rules and and norms uh, uh, planted trees and new york city still has no water treatment works so the whole city is supplied by the Catskill Delawares. Now, it does take investment, but they spend um, uh, a, a hundredth of the amount that they would spend 
on on maintenance each year of the treatment work so not only the capital but the the running costs that's, that's it, fascinating it's, it's yeah. dramatic but it required the trust yeah it, it, well it required somebody to say well we can trust the farmers and it only takes one to not do what as it were they need to be doing it's, it's a pollute the whole system it's often about incentives mm-hmm. uh, people are willing to 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 uh, even if they understand, they'll sometimes not be willing because the incentive's wrong. So if the incentives are right. And if you often look at these tricky problems we've talked about today and you look at the incentives and go, oops, you know, the incentives are entirely wrong for people to get on board, which is silly because we can predict that and make the incentives right. And, when, and, and on that point about engineering and particularly the water issue, when we do speak to water companies at this point in time, Right now, as opposed to kind of over over um, the last kind of say hundred years, one of the things that's really striking is they say the engineering's not working anymore because it's no longer just about nitrogen or just about crypto or just about um, uh, I don't know some other pollutants or yeah, metaldehydes. If you put climate change on top of that, all those other things become much more difficult to deal with. And they'd literally use that phrase, we're finding that the engineering is not working anymore. And the thing they want to do is go back to the ecology. And, um, you know, won't name the companies, but we were speaking to lots of them in a different meeting. And they basically said, the last time we employed ecologists was 25 years ago. They're all in this room and we're all the same age and we retire in three years' time. And you go, oh, right. So, But but the good thing is that they've come to that realisation. They're starting to look at it again and they're actually using the words as we want to invest in the ecology so that the water is cleaner when it gets to the treatment works. Mm. So that even... You could argue they're being pushed, but the the point is is that that is a you know with, with all these multiple threats, particularly in the southeast of of Britain and in England, we could not have more layered threats. It's the it's the worst, for want of a better word, place for multiple threats. Um, that people we're going to run out of water if we don't do the ecology right, and we've got to start doing it now. Mm. So literally moving upstream. I mean, yes. it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That we use that analogy of a, of a kind of watershed or saying that if you create the problems higher up, then they'll be expressed downstream, lower down yeah. um, or somewhere else at the very least. So, so let's just kind of come to a conclusion by thinking a bit about these nature-based solutions. I mean, this was something that, that we've been aware of for some time. The IPCC features it quite highly in the sixth assessment report earlier this year. The um, the UK government's 25-year environment plan. I mean, the first time we've ever seen such a thing, um, thinking forward that far. I mean, it's not really a plan, but it's a kind of set of desirables. But at least it's talking about 25 years, which is kind of helpful. So just, just think a bit about nature-based solutions as we've kind of circled around this. Um, we need to understand how, how systems work, how individual species are responding to environments, how those environments themselves are changing behaviours. Um, when you look at that, I mean, there's, obviously it's very different place to place, but the general proposition about nature-based solutions, does that fill you with a little bit of optimism or are you still kind of concerned about, about um, uh, actually how much is going wrong? I think, for me, I think one of the things... Um that it doesn't what concerns me a little bit is, is we often look at the situation right now and we're kind of like there's a lot of questions about what is essential fish habitat and so on and how do we place those protected areas and how, where do we focus our efforts which often you know funding is actually becoming more limited through time and so 
I mean, there have actually been quite a few cash injections in recently with the and, and the go- recent government actually been quite generous in terms of thinking about nature-based solutions. But I think one of the really hard things is thinking about how to protect what we've got now, but also forward plan for you know 150 years, 100 years. Things are changing at such a rapid rate that um, they kind of come back to what what I was talking about earlier, which is sometimes I think we just have to go for it and protect this kind of go for this 30 by 30 um, without sometimes having all the data that we absolutely want to have to make those decisions so think both on land in terms of what we could typically call rewilding but also kind of in the sea um, and and being aware of the fact that our decisions in one location will often affect somewhere else in you know it's and the really, hope it, is that more of those will be yeah. Good and bad. Well, yeah. exactly. Well, I, I sort of, it sort of strikes me a lot. We think about it developed versus you know developing countries, and should we um, subsidise kind of these other countries and so on? But even on in just developed areas, you know, if that estuary over in France is a really important sea bass nursery ground that's supplying adults to our kind of recreational or, 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 or commercial fishery. Do we, should we be, how do we have that conversation about, can you not actually put that kind of um, power station there, for example? So um, I guess it's not really a solution, but it's more about having that connectivity of of data and conversations that's both within country and across countries. And some confidence that that there is a possibility of creating the environment where things are going to get better. Yeah, yes. Most of what I've talked about is about the the marine environment. It really is about the coast, which is important because it's a bit attached to the land. And if I was to take, you know, I'm not a marine biologist per se, but I work there a lot, but if I take my marine hat off, the marine environment's actually doing pretty all right. Now, that's a relative statement. It's still got problems, but it's doing all right compared to the terrestrial and freshwater environment, particularly freshwater. Freshwater has the biggest biodiversity loss, the loss of more large charismatic animals. I think it's less than 1% of UK freshwater habitat from 500 years ago. We've still got 100% of our seawater. So you've got to put these things in perspective, and that's where nature-based solutions really come in to to it. So there's protection, which is saying no longer do anything, and there's nature-based solutions, which is effectively habitat restoration or restoration of a function, and most of that's going to happen on land or at the coast. And the coast, it's about using nature to defend us. So instead of concrete walls, allow our salt marshes to re-establish. It's hard and expensive. But then there is, I am quite, and, and therefore, you asked the question, therefore, I'm not, I'm lukewarm on that. I'm worried that we don't really mean it. But I think where we do mean it is on the issue of flooding and biodiversity loss and water quality inland. And I can, I'm quite excited about that for multiple reasons. One is I think it is achievable, but it is ambitious. It's saying, yes, we know that those flat fields near the river have some of the highest yields. But you're going to have to accept that one in five years, you'll get a different payment structure and they're going to flood and it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> yeah? Let the fish and, on. <laughs> yeah, and, and you'll, get, you'll get paid. Society will still pay you. But instead of the grazing rights or the crop subsidy, you'll get paid for something else. and you'll. But that's important because at the moment there isn't that payment structure for farmers. For It's only, we're talking about, you know, carbon credits for the future and this, but not actually water holding capacity. And I'm excited about it for another reason, which is if we look to other places in the world, I mean, we're really bad on this planet 
about wanting to come up with our own method of doing things. Whereas if you go and look at some of the ways we've done that, I mean, the, some of the wetland re- restoration and recovery incentive systems for farmers and utilitarian goals in North America, it's amazing. And you go, can we have that, please? But there's a kind of frightening to copy. It's almost like, no, 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 we've got to come up with our own system. But actually, it's very clever. And it works. It's one of the best wetland recovery examples and importantly all the wildlife the fish the ducks everything that depends on that is has recovered in a way that is is unbelievable to see but it did require some very brave political moves now granted they were i don't know maybe 100 years ago now but someone's going to have to make that brave political move and say let's completely change the incentives to allow not just nature-based solutions to problems, but nature-based solutions to the water and farming with nature and give them those payments that they, they deserve because it's their, you know, their land but that, that delivers these exciting things that we want. Fantastic. Fascinating conversation. Anna Stark, Tom Cameron, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank it's you. great to be here. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.